you know, in my travels to Papua New Guinea, to Nauru, um, and some other places in the region, you know, you did see um, some of these examples. One is in Papua New Guinea, um, the Chinese had built a road, a, an eight-lane road that went from the Papua New Guinea parliament to a hillside. Um, it was uh, it was named um, Independence Avenue, um, and uh, the Papua New Guineans joked that it was a road to nowhere uh, because it was an eight-lane road uh, in a country that only has um, really a few hundred kilometers of road in itself um, and was really unclear what the benefit was. Welcome to Flashpoint. I'm your host, Andrew Holland. My friend Dawson Law is ASP's newest adjunct fellow. He was a Foreign Service officer with experience around the world. His most recent posting was as the internal political chief at the U.S. Embassy in Canberra, Australia. He also led U.S. government coordination for APEC in Hanoi, Vietnam. We started by discussing Australia and New Zealand's response to coronavirus. But like many conversations I've had recently, we jumped quickly to the topic at the front of everyone's mind, the U.S. relationship with China. ASP, over the next couple of months, will be reorienting some of our programming to feature more analytical work on China and its realm of influence and the U.S.-China relationship. I hope you consider this episode as a jumping-off point for more to come. And now, let's get into the discussion. Dawson, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. So you spent uh, a year and a half in Australia as a political officer at the U.S. Embassy there. And before that, were in, uh, was in Hanoi uh, for, as a, the APEC coordinator. So it's fair to say that you've had a, a lot of recent experience in uh, Asia, Pacific, Australia region. That's it. Yeah. Had a, a great, uh, an amazing time really living in and working in the region, um, you know, with APEC, uh, 21 member states. So, you know, uh, members. So we were engaging, um, you know, with those all the time um, and, you know, was in a lot of our bilateral multilateral meetings. So got a really good sense there. And then Australia um, was uh, following Australian domestic politics. Um, so was meeting with members of the Australian parliament, politicians, their staff, um, and got a chance to travel throughout Australia, um, uh, really to, to better understand Australia and also um, with a lot of um, U.S. visitors who were cool. in country, yeah, to, to strengthen the alliance. Cool. Yeah, it's, it's an important alliance and has actually grown a lot uh, in, in recent years with, uh, with more U.S. military personnel going there, the, the Marine uh, Expeditionary uh, Base and all that sort of stuff. Uh, Absolutely, it, it, yeah. So... Um, no, the, the Alliance, I mean, it, it's absolutely, from my experience, was, was definitely um, strengthening and, and um, is, continues to be incredibly dynamic. Um, and obviously, you know, there are always challenges and, and alliances have to be maintained. So there's still a lot of work. But right. I know when I was there, um, there was a lot of congressional visits, um, which was really great. Um, and just a lot of um, high level attention, what seemed to be a great relationship between the Morrison government and um, the White House here in the United yeah. States, which is great. So. Yeah. So, so obviously, uh, you weren't there given current events. You weren't there when the coronavirus came on. But uh, it, certainly, you've, you've been following this closely. And there's a, a, a lot of interesting um, you know, ways to think about this. Australia and, and New Zealand next door have uh, gotten a lot of international uh, accolades 
for their stringent and effective social distancing and quarantine measures. And they've, they've been pretty effective at stopping the coronavirus in, in their track. Um, do you think this is something just of, of being an island, being a, you know, an island continent or, or New Zealand as a, a couple of small islands? Does that make it easier? Or is there something that they've been especially good at that has enabled them to to stop this uh, this infectious disease in its tracks a lot better and faster than many other nations at similar levels. Sure. Well, you know, Australia was just coming off a really um, really difficult bushfire season, which um, proved to be incredibly um, you know really impactful. Um, I know I I uh, left Australia just as the bushfires were beginning, and and I know many of my friends and former colleagues really. Um, really suffered through that. So, you know, coming right off of that, essentially, you know, more or less into the COVID crisis. Um, yeah, I mean, in terms of how Australia and, and New Zealand have been able to handle um, the crisis, I mean, uh, being an island um, does have its advantages, uh, but there's a lot of factors that have gone into their their handling of the crisis. Um, I mean, to that extent, um, one thing that, that a lot of friends and, and colleagues actually in Australia pointed out is um, the cooperation between the federal and state territory level has been uh. pretty robust. And um, what, what is normally known in Australia as the COAG, which is a, um, a couple, couple yearly meeting of um, the government with the federal government with um, state governors and territory um, chiefs executives, um, actually proved to be a really key coordinating mechanism um, huh. when it came to this crisis. And their um, discussions and their sort of agreement on many um, various, you know, sort of regulations that would, um, you know, protect folks really became a critical piece and, and is seen as, I think, as a real success in the sense right. that um, folks were kind of on the same page, more or less. Um, and, and, you know, obviously in, in juxtaposition here with the United States where, you know, right. having 50 states, you know, you know, it's a little, a little different, frankly. So, yeah, yeah. To have states uh, competing against each other for who can pay more for PPE for their hospitals is probably not the best model for driving cooperation across states and, and, and everything like that. That's really yeah, interesting. Exactly having that uniformity of, of regulations across states and territories really, you know, and, and Australia obviously was a strength for them. Um, yeah. and, and back to your question about being an island, um, you know, the, the other advantage they have, um, w you know, is that they do have a very limited amount of ports of entry, both Australia and New Zealand, right? That they have a limited amount of international airports and a limited amount of ports where things right. are coming in and out. So, the ability to really um, monitor those very closely and provide that oversight um, is just really helpful. Uh, what do you, what, what accounts for, for that? Did they, did they put in place heavy monitoring? Did they put in place uh, stops on, on flights coming from highly infected areas? Uh, what's kind of the lessons of just, just getting stuff done, you know, uh, at, at airports and everything. I, I've heard, you know, there still isn't any any sort of tracing at, at US airports or, or anything like that. I wonder what drives that. Sure, so, um, you know, talking to, to friends there, uh, you know, they were really remarking, for example, once once the borders were closed and, and, uh, and you know, the, the uh, precautionary procedures were put in place for COVID, uh, uh, folks really couldn't really couldn't leave their house, and I, I have a, a couple oh. examples. Um, uh, 
you know, other than for grocery shopping, you know, the necessary things, but even then, um, you know, there were still difficulties. So, you know, I know um, uh, some some folks that were living there, one of them decided to have coffee just outside his apartment building, um, you know, in a nice area, which was quite shut down and quite empty. Um, And as he was having a coffee there, um, the police approached him and asked him what he was doing and and asked him to go home. Um, He was alone. There was nobody around. Um, You know, there, there was no you know, real risk per se at that moment, but it didn't matter. The, the rules were clear. Um, and I know as well, an Australian journalist posted on, on Twitter, I thought it was a very good example of the family went out to a park to do exercise, which was an allowed activity. Um, uh, the journalist's daughter didn't want to exercise and decided to sit on a bench and read. And uh, the police approached the 10-year-old daughter to ask um, what she was doing and why she wasn't exercising or she should go home. And uh, the journalist was uh, found it all in some ways funny uh, because you know uh, she was disappointed her daughter wouldn't exercise, and in fact the police now cared, right? So <laughs> anyway, uh, you know, so uh, I think there's also a factor here, which is that um, Australians really, uh, you know, and, and New Zealanders to some extent, you know, look to the government in a very different way than the United States. Right? Americans, yeah. um, I think, look at their government with a, a sense of distrust sometimes, or um, uh, you know, not quite the same perspective. And I think Australians and New Zealanders tend to, tended, in my mind, to, to follow, regu- you know, the restrictions a little um, more diligently, um, because perhaps it's a bit of a different mindset when it comes to government and the role government can play in your life. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, and I think it's also really interesting. I mean, you noted earlier how, how close the Morrison government and the Trump government is, you know, it's a conservative government, right? Uh, and that's, but that there hasn't been a political divide, right, between, from right to left on the efficacy of, of these uh, strict regulations or whether or not we're going to do it. it. It's been kind of an understood thing uh, that, that we are going to do this. And uh, it, there hasn't been these protests or this pushback from people saying, no, we wouldn't fight that. I, I mean, I could imagine it being a you know, a one day news story of, oh, the police told me I couldn't have a coffee outside, you know, on, on, you know, whatever cable news channel you want to, you want to list. And, and it, it just isn't the case. People follow the rules and, and understand the need for those rules. It's really interesting. Yeah, it's, it's really is. And, um, you know, to that end, uh, when I was in Australia, I was incredibly impressed. You know, I was meeting with, on a regular basis, um, uh, members of, of of the Morrison government, the opposition, the Labour Party, mm-hmm. and others, and working very closely with many of their parliamentary committees. And one point of pride they had, and I think um, we, you know, we would admire as well, was that national security issues tend to be bipartisan, and that there mm-hmm. is an effort by both parties to see national security issues, and COVID would qualify as one of those, as bipartisan, as as a need for bipartisan um, consensus and discussion um, and solutions, um, and that partisan divides on such issues can can be really um, you know detrimental in the end. And so um, that was really impressive. It's not that it always happens, and absolutely there is a rigorous debate. It's you know a rigorous democracy in that sense, but uh, but that they strive to reach that bipartisan consensus, and I think that was quite evident in Australia's uh, response to to COVID. Yeah, certainly the, the United States, uh, we have this, this sort of idea of, of when we used to have a bipartisan consensus and how, how that was uh, important for national security, foreign policy, the 
uh, you know, to kind of get, get back to that. But that you're certainly right that that does seem to have, have broken down. And I think it's interesting, too, that um, you put the coronavirus into this national security lens. And it's not clear to me that that's happened here in the United States. It's, it's put into the public health lens, uh, not into the, the national security crisis even though the, the numbers of deaths and everything are, are uh, well beyond any sort of national security crisis that, that we've seen, uh, certainly in our lifetimes. Uh, it's really quite, uh, quite something, just which pigeonhole, which silo we choose to put it in, in government and even in our own minds about how we, we set that up. Sure, absolutely, and and you know I think in Australia in particular, obviously the partisan debate was 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 um, reserved for uh, economic recovery, uh, you know, proposals and the stimulus, right, and you know various things like that. Whereas the response side was, you know, like we said, right, was um, much more, um, you know, there was much more agreement, and, and not just among the parties, but then among various governors and territory, you know, the, ter- the heads of the territories. So that was. Um, important in their mind, I think, to yeah. have a good, good response. Yeah, and it, it, it does get to talk about the, the response, though. Um, I mean, both of these countries, New Zealand, Australia, do rely on tourism, do rely on people coming in, increasingly um, tourism from Asia, right? So uh, Chinese and, and, and other Asian tourists coming in there. And, and so as they go back to it, it it's, it's obviously not going to, for anybody, it's not economically sustainable to have your borders shut forever, to have everybody locked down forever. Um, so it's going to be a tough balancing act to start to reopen, start to accept in foreign visitors and, uh, and have that, that reopening happening um, in, to, to have your economy grow again. Yeah, that'll that'll be a definite challenge. Um, you know, like we were talking about before, in some ways, the advantage they have is the limited amount of ports of entry, which um, which yeah. do make things a little more straightforward yeah. uh, in terms of monitoring. But 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 the fact that people can be asymptomatic, right? Yeah. You know, is is a little difficult, right? So how long do quarantines stay in place? Then, if you do arrive, how long do you have to quarantine? So, um, and I would I would throw tourism in there with education with students. Uh, being a major source of of uh, of the economy um, in terms of the amount that study in Australia and the yeah. the importance to Australian universities, also a challenge for the United States. Um, yeah. And then also, you know, you would even throw in there, um, you know, foreign labor, which is essential to their economy um, yeah. as well, right? Um, Australia brings in a lot of foreign labor um, for various parts of their economy, which they, you know, which. Uh, from my experience in Australia, they fundamentally needed, right? And it was obviously a debate about how that shaped and, and exactly um, what that immigration system looks like. But nonetheless, um, how do you continue to bring in the labor you need to kind of then continue to make sure the economy can 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 grow? Well, frankly, rebound and then eventually grow, right? So, yeah, that's so interesting. They they need foreign labor. They've had, I mean, economic growth for what a record like 30 years or something Incredible. in a row it, it's just crazy uh so so you only sustain that by by drawing in uh new labor forces and everything and so that that's a real challenge as well to make sure that these these migratory labor groups don't uh become you know an area where where hot spots of of the virus can come back up 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, and obviously, they're, you know, they've been able to take the step, which is obviously to reopen some travel, trans-Tasman travel between Australia and New Zealand, which would be hugely advantageous. I know many Australians uh, were always shocked at how, how many places I had been in Australia, and, and they were always getting on a 15-hour flight to some other part of the world. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, I think for all of us this year, we may be thinking about how it's a wonderful opportunity to do domestic tourism, and yeah. in their case, maybe trans-Tasman tourism, uh, you know. Yeah, we have the, we certainly, those, those of you who, who've traveled around, you definitely have this feeling that's like, oh, another Australian, more Australians, you know, all over <laughs> Europe, all over the backpacker routes and everything well like traveled. that. They are well traveled. I, I read something somewhere that like, I don't know, some absurd number, one out of five Australians in their 20s is not actually in Australia or something like that at any given yeah. time. You know, yeah, they're, absolutely. There's uh... <laughs> well traveled. It's like if they're that far away that if you're gonna go somewhere, uh, you go for a while. Uh, just is. like yeah. if if you're an American and you go there, you might as well stay for a while. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> so that that's interesting. Um, so the, so Australia has, has had a, a a tough, interesting geopolitics, and I'm sure you saw this uh, while you were there. Obviously, close American ally has been uh, since World War II, you know, really the, probably our closest ally has fought with us side by side in every war, uh, closer than, than the British and, and everything like that, that, that we've, we've worked with them very closely and very effectively for a long, long time. But at the same time, their uh, number one export area is China, has been China recently. And the, the strength of their economy uh, has been dependent on this, this China export, whether it's, you know, of coal or ore or other natural materials have, have really, you know, the, the China growth has been a big part of the Australian growth model for the last decade or two. Um, so it's been a real balancing act, especially as the U.S. and China have become more antagonistic for them. Um, I think it's really interesting that the Australians have uh, started to push the Chinese on uh, getting more in info and intelligence on where the virus came from and how that came about and how the Chinese have been pushing back on that. What, what have you seen on this? And, and, you know, maybe you could tell a little bit more about this balancing act they do. Sure, yeah. I mean, um, it is a real challenge for Australia. China is a major economic partner, although the United States still remains the largest investor in Australia. So okay. um, there's, you know, obviously a, a tension there. And I think, um, you know, that was always something, at least in my mind, that was a really important differentiation to look at, right, is uh, it's one thing to export your products to somewhere, but it's another thing to have um, investment in yeah. forward, forward thinking um, careers and industries, right, yeah. tech, um, and other areas like that, which are sort of um, a key, also a part, a key part of the economy and, and will increasingly yeah. be so, right? Um, but yeah, in terms of the, the tension with China, um, yeah, we saw very recently that China imposed um, uh, duties on Australian barley, which um, will make it prohibitively pricey and therefore, yeah. um, you know, those, those exports um, uh, will be stopped. I, I was just watching um, a report about the fact that um, when China imposed um, those duties, uh, 
they only gave less than 24 hours for Australia to make any comments or the industry wow. to kind of, you know, provide any um, uh, comments on, on that duty that was going to be imposed. And, and in fact, there was no time to impose that duty. So, um, so anyway, so it became a real challenge for them. And uh, now, obviously, the trade minister um, has said that they'll take China to, to the World Trade Organization um, to look at this. But nonetheless, um, this does sadly follow a, um, a trend where um, China will um, will sort of punish Australia and, and other countries in some cases when they perceive that um, you know they're being singled out in an international organization. Interesting. Were those duties a, a retaliatory duties, or was it kind of out of the blue? Uh, it came out of the blue. Um, you know, a lot of times this has happened with beef before. Yeah. Um, obviously, the the technical reasons vary for the reasons they're imposed, uh, but I think it's widely acknowledged that in fact it is it is not about phytosanitary concerns usually or something right. else. That it is a ultimately a ge geopolitical um, move. Right, right. And the Chinese certainly have uh, not been afraid to throw their weight around and use their economic power as a way to to affect political power and, and to try and fight. Them. Absolutely. And they're very smart about that. Right. You know, when you're banning an agricultural product, you know, you're affecting electorates, which tend to be rural in right. nature and are frankly very critical to elections in Australia. And that goes for the United States as well with yeah. you know the, the, the trade war we have here. So um, there is there, you know, there, there's a sophistication there, right? That's beyond just banning of an import, but you know, or an export, but uh, but in fact, um, something that does have a political effect in some roundabout way, right? Yeah, yeah a really, really targeted sort of uh, attack on a a political area. Interesting yeah. that they do that. Um, what it, when you were doing APEC work? Um, was did you see a kind of a, a an effect where countries were kind of bandwagoning together to try and push back on China, or has China been effective in throughout the region in getting what it wants from from people throughout there? What what do you think? What what did you what was your uh, experience seeing the Chinese uh, work through this this stuff? Sure. Well. Um yeah, I mean, it's it's incredibly complex. Obviously, um, there you know there were obvious instances of bullying, um, you know, and and um, threats that were used, um, you know, in in the various meetings I was in, and 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 that was troubling from our side. Obviously, um, yeah. you know, uh, obviously, the, you know, there's in any organization like APEC, which is consensus driven, um, everybody has to be on board. Um, you know, with with members such as China, Russia, and others, you know, that's that's a real delicate balance. Um, yeah. Also, APEC is one of two organizations that Taiwan is officially a member of, um, yeah. which has, an, uh, you know, World Health Organization APEC, right, um, which has a, a real tension there as well, right? So um, that was something that I, I worked very um, closely on as well. So, yeah, I think within the region, and I saw this in Vietnam as well, um, I was also uh, in Papua New Guinea for APEC Leaders Week there as well, and we saw um, some real tensions when it came to uh, to China uh, throw, throwing around its weight with Pacific leaders um, and, and with, within the region. So, um, Yeah, my, my experience has been 
kind of watching it from afar, obviously, it, it does, I think you're right with, with sophisticated is, is the right way to think of it, because it's, it is very much a mix of bullying, like you said, but then also coming with cash and, and you know, the real carrot sort of stuff, you get money, you get investment from China, or you get, you know, preferential imports, if you work with us, uh, and then and vice versa. Uh, if you work against us, then we'll take it away. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and I saw that firsthand in my travels in the Pacific, um, you know, which is obviously a, a realm which is very, you know, important to Australia and New Zealand and, yeah. and the United States, obviously, but nonetheless, especially Australia and New Zealand. And, um, you know, in my travels to Papua New Guinea, to Nauru, um, and some other places in the region, you know, you did see um, some of these examples. One is in Papua New Guinea, um, the Chinese had built a road, a, an eight-lane road that went from the Papua New Guinea Parliament to a hillside. Um, it was uh, it was named um, Independence Avenue, um, and uh, the Papua New Guineans joked that it was a road to nowhere <laughs> uh, because it was an eight-lane road uh, in a country that only has um, really a few hundred kilometers of road in itself, um, <laughs> and it was really unclear what the benefit was. So there was some really um, you know, it wasn't lost on the locals, uh, right? <laughs> you know, it was not lost on the locals about sort of the irony here. Uh, yeah. Of such a road. So, yeah, that's interesting. You know, it, it, it can kind of come back on them a little bit. It, they they want to throw their largesse around, but, you, you know, it's got to be appropriate too. That That's so interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we've seen it. I, I, I've done some work and some some studies looking around the whole Pacific, and I think I think the Pacific should be way more important to American policymakers. We forget about you know small countries in the Pacific to our detriment, and then when we need them, they won't be there for us. I, I do worry about that, and I, we've seen the Chinese using like. Um, climate aid and, and stuff like this as a way to, to shore up their, their geopolitical position. And the U S just isn't there, isn't, isn't playing, isn't, isn't active. And, and I think that's to our detriment. And, and, you know, when we need these, these small countries, uh, we won't be able to. to sure. To I mean, I would say though, in my time, um, you know, working on, on Australia, um, that there was a real shift in, in, in U.S. policymaker thinking when it came to the Pacific and increased mm. attention, increased awareness of the importance. Good. Um, and, uh, and that was really encouraging to see. And I think there's been a lot of, um, a lot of, uh, sort of attention, whether it be bureaucratic or aid related, um, you know, that really will, I hope in the future pay dividends when it comes to, you know, um, that part of the region. And, yeah. and, um, and also even when I, even when I was in Australia, the, the congressional attention, frankly, on, on the Pacific was increasing as well. So um, Good. yeah, that's encouraging and we'll, we'll yeah. see where, where it goes. Right. But yeah. Yeah. So, so obviously the United States has a, has an interest here in, uh, in the Pacific, one of our 50 states is a Pacific Island state, you know, Hawaii. And Hawaii has actually also seen kind of the same effectiveness in, in battling COVID as Australia, New Zealand has been able to kind of shut down its borders and, and really deal with outbreaks pretty effectively there. Um, but I mean, do you think they're going to they're going to face the same balancing act? A huge tourist uh, economy and and the importance of of that, uh, where you know, how do you balance these things? Or 
is there lessons from Australia, from New Zealand, from other islands that, that Americans and, and particularly Americans on, on, in the Pacific or on the islands can, can uh, take, take from them? Sure, absolutely. Well, um, yeah, I mean, when it comes to uh, that response, I mean, um, yeah, I mean, just the ability to to quickly take action, right, to to close the borders, then to to, to have very clear steps that were um, generally followed. Not that it was easy for any Australian or New Zealander to stay home for such an extended period of time, but, but compliance was um, seemed to be incredibly high from my observations of, you know, yeah. and talking to friends. And and seeing that, um, so that obviously had a great effect, and and they, you know, I think um, with a clear reopening plan that you know sort of limits exposure, then that's that's huge. I mean, obviously this economic recovery element is a really challenging one. Yeah. Um, I imagine for um, I imagine for the islands, you know, in terms of the Pacific in handling this, um, they do have an advantage when it comes to you know if they don't if they're able to limit the ability for it to get in, then then they'll yeah. really um, you know be be well off in that sense. So obviously some of the very delicate health systems um, that, it, that, ha that exist on a lot of the Pacific Islands are a real challenge. So, you know, uh, in many cases, my experience was that if there was any urgent, uh, you know, healthcare needed from, uh, from a lot of these Pacific Islands, that people were flown to Australia or New Zealand for treatment. Well, that could be incredibly challenging if, if you know, COVID is ongoing. So um, it's in their interest to really yeah. um, limit that exposure. Really yeah. fundamental. Yeah. 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 Uh, well, as, as we close these, these podcasts all up, I, we always like to ask one final question, and, and that is, you know, ASP really prides itself on not chasing the headlines of today, but thinking about what the headlines are going to be in five or 10 years. Uh, so I guess my question for you is, given what we've talked about, and uh, what do you think the, the headline uh, in say five years about Australia and the region is that, that, that we should be preparing for, that we should be thinking for uh, and, and moving towards that direction? Sure, I mean, as it relates to, to COVID, um, it sounds like we have um, what is some exemplary models of, of yeah. how to deal with a health crisis like this. Um, you know, not that there weren't mistakes made, but surely that, you know, that, that things went pretty pretty well. Um, obviously, the economic recovery piece will be a critical part of the story, and we really don't know where that goes from here on out. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and and the, uh, frankly, the predictability of the health systems in New Zealand and Australia, I think, has been really um, helpful, you know, in their fight against this uh, as well, right, that they have these um, health systems which are, are well-respected, well-thought-of within uh, Australia and New Zealand themselves, and and that's been, I think, helpful. As it, as it relates to larger headlines as we look forward, um, you know, we talked about a really big one, the Pacific. Mm -hmm. um, absolutely, uh, you know, how the the balance of power and influence um, shakes out in the Pacific and, and what, um, you know, what the United States and its allies and are able to do to, to balance some of the, the challenges out there. I think we also will look very closely at, um, uh, at the ability, um, well, frankly, yeah, for the, the alliance to stay strong, right? And yep. to, to, you know, to, to, to transform, for example, Australia, to transform its economy, to be a little less reliant on exports to China, right? And to diversify their economy, to minimize the impact of uh, bans and such like that. And, and that's, that's the challenge for Australian policymakers and to some extent, some New Zealand policymakers to really um, manage that uh, yeah. well.
Yeah. Well, Dawson Law, thanks for being with us. This was a great conversation. Uh, let's do it again soon. Thanks very much, Andrew. Great to be with you.